Rebecca Stevens has worked as an actor, stand-up comedian and a scriptwriter for children's television, writing for shows such as Mr Bean and Postman Pat. Her first solo book, Valentine Joe, was long-listed for the Branford Bose Award in 2015 and shortlisted for many other awards. Her latest title, Lily and the Rockets, is a tale about determination, friendship and women's football, set in post-First World War England. And Rebecca met with Nikki Gamble to tell us more about her inspiration and work. To begin, Rebecca, can you tell us about how you became interested in the subject of women's football during the First World War? Well, my story was inspired by a period in history at the beginning of the 20th century when women and girls dominated the national game of football, um, which I only heard about probably about 15 years ago when a friend of mine was doing uh, a one-person show about it. And I just thought it was absolutely extraordinary. So I took that period um, when the munitionettes, the women went into the factories to fill up the jobs that the men had left behind because they were out in the trenches, out at the front. And they also formed football teams, which then became extraordinarily successful. Um, so I thought, there is a story in here. So I, I researched a lot and read a lot about it, and I decided that the best way in was to set my story in Woolwich at the Arsenal, which was the biggest munitions factory in the world at the time. And then, of course became the one of the most famous football teams in the world. So my Lily is a 14-year-old girl who gets a, leaves school, gets a job in the Arsenal um, and then joins the, joins the other girls in playing football. And she's a, an exceptional girl in that she's very tall. She's the solo child of a single dad who was a goalkeeper in his time. And so he's devoted his time to teaching Lily all his goalkeeping skills so she's nearly six foot tall so she's an exceptional exceptional girl but her height and her unusualness come into their own in the story and she becomes the Rockets goalkeeper. I have to admit I was never particularly interested in football when I was growing up but having read Lily and the Rockets I've definitely been converted When I was teaching, I do remember one girl in particular who was the most talented player in the football team and she was allowed to play in friendly matches but not permitted to play in the league matches, which always seemed like an injustice. It's mad, isn't it? My son, I mean, I I was like you. I mean, I, I grew up playing hockey at school and as I say in I think my afterword in the book we wanted to play football just because it looked like more fun and the games teacher said no we couldn't because it wasn't suitable for girls why she could not explain why I only came to love and understand football properly when my son was playing and say the same sort of story he played boys Sunday league at a time when girls were allowed to play with the boys until they were 11 but they mostly didn't but there was one team that they used to play which had a girl playing and none of the boys noticed bless them you know they didn't comment on it they just just didn't notice she was the best you know and she plays for England ladies now England women's so she's an international player which is wonderful we we watch her and think yeah so is your Lily based on a real historical figure well, she's not really. I stole her name from a woman, uh, a player, well, girl she started, uh, she started off called Lily Parr. 
She wasn't a goalkeeper like my Lily. She was a striker. And she's, I mean, still thought to be possibly the greatest female footballer ever. She was discovered at the age of 14, as I say. And like my Lily, she was, she was nearly six foot tall. And she was said to have a kick on her that had the power of any man, any player, any man. Um, and there's a wonderful story about Lily Parr where she was challenged by a professional male goalkeeper who was watching them play, the, the, the women play, and who said, you know, she's not bad, um, but she's never going to be able to get a ball past me. And so he challenged her and she went, being her she said you're on <laughs> and so she took on the challenge and she not only got the ball into the net she broke his arm in doing it <laughs> oh yes you used that incident in your story I wonder if you could read that for us yes so my villain is called Joe Crawford and he like a lot of the men then quite understandably in a way to be fair he is kind of representative of the feeling that he, they didn't, some of the men didn't like the women going into the factories and they really didn't like the women playing football and they really, really, really didn't like the women being good at football. Um, so Joe Crawford has challenged Lily's friend Jess, who is a centre-forward, who is a goal-scorer, to try and get a ball past him. OK, so I'll start now. OK. Word spread fast that the captain of the ladies' football team had taken up a challenge to get a shot past the great Joe Crawford. It seemed like everyone in the factory was talking about it. He was a professional, wasn't he? That's right. Kept goal for the Arsenal before the war, up at Highbury. And she thinks she'll get a goal past him. Tch. When the day arrived, so many people came to watch that there was barely room to play. I spotted Dora Crawford, standing with a couple of other girls from the tailor's shop, looking like they had a bad smell beneath their noses, and some men in bowler hats and smart overcoats that I'd never seen before. Miss Barker was there, of course. She'd made the trip across from her office and was standing at the side talking to Miss Foxwell and another important lady visitor in a hat. I felt my heart pounding as Joe Crawford took his place in my gold. One of the older men was acting as referee, probably because he had his own whistle, and he showed Jess where to place her ball a few yards in front of the goal. Her face was still and looked white beneath its yellow tinge. She put her ball down on its spot very carefully, as if it was made of glass, then walked back slowly to take her run up. Crawford was grinning at the men, bouncing from foot to foot and slapping his hands together. I was standing to the left of the goal, watching Jess. Watch the player, as Dad always said. Don't watch the ball, Lilio. Watch the player. I watched her. The referee blew his whistle. Jess looked down at the ball. She looked across at Crawford. Then she drew a deep breath, ran her few steps, dropped her left shoulder, drew back her right foot and... I'd never seen a shot like it. Not from any girl, any man, any player. Never. And then, smack! Crawford made a sound that was half scream and half yell. 
The ball had hit his shoulder with a sickening crunch, slamming him up against the wall of the workshop behind him. The ball bounced back to Jess, who calmly tapped it past him into the goal. There was a heartbeat's pause. Then the referee blew his whistle and ran over to Crawford, who had slithered down the wall and was lying groaning and writhing about on the ground. And the girls went mad. They cheered and shouted and bounced and hugged each other and gathered round Jess to pat her on the back and hug and kiss her in a great explosion of joy. Even Miss Barker and the other ladies smiled and went over to shake her hand. But Jess just stood there, her ball under her arm, looking at Crawford, and so did I. We both knew what had happened. Jess had won the challenge but she'd broken Joe Crawford's arm. I feel a little bit guilty that I found it so satisfying when your villain received his comeuppance. <laughs> it is quite satisfying, isn't it? <laughs> Especially when you know what a nasty piece of work he is. <laughs> Playing football isn't the only way in which gender roles are challenged in your story. You reference the music hall too. Yes, I just briefly mentioned Fester Tilly, who was a, a male impersonator at the time. He was famous for Burlington Bertie. I'm Burlington Bertie from Bow. It was, it was a, quite a big thing then. I mean, I suppose it was slightly saucy to see women dressed up as men, but also completely liberating for Edwardian women to see, you know, people of their own gender, you know, dressed up and behaving as men and dominating the stage. I mean, it was a big thing, and it's interesting. Uh, and I suppose it draws on the tradition of, like, Shakespearean heroines I was thinking of as well. A lot of his comic heroines kind of find themselves and find liberation and find their way in the world through becoming boys and men um, just for a brief time. And I, I mean, I love all that. The, you know, the, you can put on a, di on a different outfit and you can become somebody different. Um, particularly at a time when gender roles in Edwardian England were so rigid, and to some extent still are, but I suppose, I suppose we don't need to go around dressed up as men anymore, do we? <laughs> Did you find the construction of gender roles restricting when you were growing up? Well, I've always felt very strongly, and I've never really, I've never really vocalised it before. Um, when I was growing up, I. I never felt like I was a girl or a boy. And I don't know if, if I'm unusual in this, but I, I quite often, and have done since I was a child, dream that I'm male, um, and particular, particularly in the circumstances, situations of the First World War, which I think is why I've written two books that are set in the period. Um, so I'm very specifically male, not in a kind of, you know, erotic way, or, but just, you know, I'm a soldier in uniform and I'm male, and I've always felt very strongly that my brain inside I don't have a gender at all and and when I was a little girl because we had a teeny weeny little library um, in the very small town I grew up with a limited number of books um, so I used to read an awful lot of books that were I suppose aimed mostly at boys like I loved Jennings and Derbyshire and have never had any problem in identifying with male protagonists which I know some people do, you know. And so I always felt that, you know, pushing people into one 
children, people into one gender or another, seems so unnecessarily limiting and kind of mad, really. You know, I mean, I remember I I was surprised when I found out because uh, I came from a very female-dominated family with a with a very loud mother <laughs> and a very quiet father, and me and my sister. And I remember the feeling of amazement when I discovered that the world wasn't ruled by people like my mother, that it was actually <laughs> actually ruled mostly by men. And it and it just I can still feel the feeling of outrage, um, and unfairness, and actual weirdness. You know. Because my mother just seemed so much more competent. She was a teacher. <laughs> Are we making progress? Do you think marketing of children's books has become more or less gendered? Well, I think that, strangely, though we've progressed recently a lot uh, in recent times, since I, don't know, uh, since I was little, I think the genderization of reading has happened. I mean, obviously, there were books like that had, you know, like as I say, Jennings and Derbyshire, which presumably were a bit more aimed at boys. But now it's like market. Is this a boys' book or a girls' book? And um, and also clothes as well. I was kind of shocked because I have two children who are now in their twenties. When they were little, how difficult it was to get clothes that weren't, you know, pink and sparkly for girls and dull with pictures of lorries on on the front for boys, you know. That I think that the gender divide has become much more binary, much more rigid than it was when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. Lily and the Rockets is packed with historical detail. It's absolutely fascinating. Was it a challenge to communicate that information through a first-person narrative? Well, I don't know if... Writing in the first person made it more difficult. I'm not sure. I, I've never written in the first person before, and I, I really enjoyed it a lot more than writing in the third person. As regards the getting the historical background and everything right, I mean, I just did loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of reading. Um, and as you say, it was... A, it was a bit more of a challenge than I thought it was going to be because there's so many areas in this book. I mean, I already knew quite a lot about the First World War and that period through Valentine Joe, which was my first story, um, but not so much about the home front, what life was like in London. Um, so, But I had to know that. I had to know about life for what life was like in the factories for the munition workers. I also had, you know, I may... I, painted myself into a corner really because I also had the pen pal who um, is a member of the footballers battalion so I really wanted to know about that even though there's not a lot about it I, I felt like I needed to know what they went through um, Amy May Lily's friend who goes off to become a nurse a frontline nurse which again I did know about because that was my grandmother was a, a frontline nurse in the first world war so um, and then, you know, there's things like the history of Arsenal Football Club, which you know darn well. That if you, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of enthusiasts out there who, if you get one tiny thing wrong, <laughs> they're going to be down on you like a ton of bricks. So what I do is I, I, I read and read and read and read, and I like, I like kind of first-hand accounts more than anything, um, if you can get hold of them and diaries and letters and things and then just let it all sink in and then just start 
The first person isn't conducive to the insertion of too much exposition. Yes, you're right. But And in a way, maybe that actually makes it easier because you, if you don't have the temptation to tell the reader what, what it's like, you don't have that danger of lurching into exposition. Uh, do you see what I mean? So you're just... If you're there with Lily, and I'm one of these people who has to know exactly what the room smells like before I can describe it. You know, I have to know every detail. So hopefully it kind of comes out as, as an organic thing um, rather, than, rather than saying, well, of course, in those days. <laughs> you write about an incident when a zeppelin is burning over London and the crowd's fascination turns to sympathy and horror when they realise that the crew are falling from the sky... Was this based on historical record or is it modern sensibility that requires that response? I don't know. I mean, I know that the field hospitals that did treat Germans in the same wards as they treated British and, and Allied soldiers, I know, I know that that's true, and that nursing staff and medical staff made, made no distinction whatsoever. The story about the, the Zeppelin burning over... I just put myself in that situation, to be honest. Um, I mean, I might be wrong. I mean, people might have been cheering. Uh, but I sort of... when Once you realise those little flakes of flame are human beings, I hope and I think that most people would feel compassion rather than triumph when they realise that's a man, you know. That's a man like my son, my husband, my boyfriend, you know. It's the reality of it. It, it's the same kind of feeling of the First World War, you know, the, the great stories about the football being played between the lines in no man's land, that once you look at your enemy and you see he's a, he's a man like you, he's a boy like you, you know, how can you, how can you feel happy when he's dead, you know, triumph when he's injured? What were you most pleased about when you'd finished writing this book? <laughs> um, got to the end at last. It's a lot longer than my other books. <laughs> no, I loved writing this one, I did, I'm joking. Um, it's the first time I've kind of felt like I've got a real issue. And, you know, I've always been I'm a traditional 1970s feminist and I've not used that in my writing before. Um, and it's lovely to kind of actually have sort of have an argument basically to 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 write about and and an issue as i say an issue to write about and lot of and a lot of people have picked up on that and also you know it is i promise you it is a coincidence it is great timing for women's football <laughs> thank you rebecca that's a really good note to end on good luck to the women's football team and good luck to lily and the rockets too Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues. Just Imagine also has a free fortnightly newsletter packed full of the latest news, CPD training, reviews and giveaways. To sign up, visit justimagine.co.uk forward slash newsletter.